Fora TV podcasts are brought to you by the Wellness Channel, sponsored by Pfizer at fora.tv slash wellness. I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand. <laughs> From the Long Now Foundation, we're going to have a vote shortly, so I'm going to need lights up in the house where we won't know who won. Um, next speaker you should know is on a Wednesday, May 21st. It's Iqbal Kabir, who is the guy who started Grameen Phone in Bangladesh, which started the cell phone revolution, which is bringing about 2 billion people out of poverty these days. And uh, his theme is that that works for technology across the board. Technology empowers the poorest. After that, my old teacher, Paul Ehrlich, in June, June 27th, he's taken on a new field in his 70s, which is human cultural evolution. And he'll be talking about that, I think, for the first time in June. Now, the idea of the long now, actually, its size was determined by Peter Schwartz, who's here in the middle seat that it's uh, 10,000 years of past, because that's how long we've been doing agriculture and towns and domesticating animals and ourselves and things like that. And the next 10,000 years, the idea that whatever the story is, we're right in the middle of it, not at the end, not at the beginning, we're right in the middle. But one of the peculiarities is this odd asymmetry between the last 10,000 years and the next 10,000 years. Past and future are different animals. And they have different disciplinarians who uh, teach us about them. And very few, in fact, I think no futurists have actually had historical training. Is that right, Peter? Yeah, there you go. And not that many historians uh, even want to speak about the future, but we have one tonight. So there's a philosophical, epistemological, disciplinary mindset uh, between these two areas, which is quite different. And so tonight we have leading practitioners, one of each. Now, the way these Long Now debates work, we've had one, so it's now a tradition, <laughs> is the audience decides who goes first. That person then comes up here and holds forth for exactly 15 minutes and goes and sits down and is interviewed by the second speaker for 10 minutes, just basically drawing them out. It's not a debate point-making deal, it's, a, it's an interview. And then that person who's doing the interview has the job of summarizing the first speaker's argument to that person's satisfaction. And then they reverse roles. The second speaker comes up for 15 minutes, gets interviewed for 10 minutes, and so on. All this time, some of you will be writing questions, I hope, which will be forwarded up to Kevin Kelly, who will process for the best ones, and bring them up to me. I'll be up here on the stage. 
And uh, at that point, and throughout the questions, we'll be keeping questions coming up, uh, you guys are in the thick of it as well. I've been asked to give some framing for how to vote. And one is an historian, one is a futurist. Uh, the existing entity that, in a sense, both are dealing with is this recent book by Neil Ferguson called The War of the World. It is about the 20th century, and it is a dark, bleak, grim book. The Age of Hatred is the subtitle in England, not here. And Peter's books tend to be things like Inevitable Surprises, The Art of the Long View, one called The Long Boom, and they're all future-oriented. So, we're about to have a vote, and you are to, you should be thinking about what you want, not join some title flow, but actually, you know, do your vote. It'll be a hand, and if you want to say something, you can. And I don't know which one will go first. Okay, uh, who want Neil Ferguson to go first? All right, hands down. How many want Peter Schwartz to go first? I make that as slightly less. Do you guys agree that, that Neil is, is won the vote? Do you think Neil I, won the vote? I'd say so. Or we could do this like the Democratic primary and just keep going. <laughs> Neil, you ignorant. Neil, you're on. Good luck. <laughs> Thanks very much. Well, <clears throat> well, it's a great pleasure to be here. I'm a huge fan of the Long Now. We've been trying to make this happen for some considerable time, and I can only say it's a great honor to be on the same stage as, as Stuart uh, and Peter. Since time is not on my side, I'm now going to cut the flattery and get straight to the point. There's one thing that I think uh, Peter and I agree on, and that is that there is, ladies and gentlemen, no such thing as the future. There are only futures, plural. However, there is only one past, albeit a past which can be interpreted in multiple ways. Now, I want to explain to you what the past is and then what history is. The past, it used to be said, is another country. That's not true. It's another planet. And it's a planet inhabited by the dead. And the dead outnumber us massively. According to the Population Reference Bureau, from 50,000 BC, when Homo sapiens first appeared, until the 1990s, I haven't updated the figures, 100 billion human beings have been born. So the current world population is about 6% of all the human beings who have ever lived. And the past is that other planet where the dead majority lives. What historians do is to try to understand that planet. What they can't do, and I want to be very clear about this, they can't establish universal laws of social or political physics with reliable, predictable powers. There are two reasons for this. The first is that there's no possibility of repeating uh, the experiment called history. The sample size of human history is n equals 1. The other problem is that 
you can't really have physics when the particles have consciousness, particularly the kind of consciousness that human beings have evolved, which, interestingly enough, turns out to be especially skewed when it comes to understanding the past. Our heuristic biases are very bad when we try to assess past events. So that's what historians can't do. But ladies and gentlemen, they can do some important things nevertheless. What they can do is, first, they can analyze and interpret human experience in the past at multiple levels. We can go from the micro, the individual's experience, to the macro, the entire experience uh, of humanity over short or long time periods. It's a very flexible discipline in that sense. And we work in a certain rough and ready way. That's not such a bad thing. We, we can, with a rather coarse-grained approach, we can draw analogies between different situations in the past or between situations in the past and situations uh, in the present. For example, we can quite easily make comparisons between financial crises over time. They have certain common uh, features, even although no two can be said to be identical. The same goes for geopolitical crises and wars. The other thing that historians can do, which is quite clever in my view, though hardly any of them do it, I do it compulsively, is we can imagine or simulate alternative pasts, and I use the term advisedly because there is only one past, fake pasts that didn't happen but might have. And they're a terribly important device for understanding what did happen. It was a great Louis Namio who once said that historians could only really be said to be doing their job well if they had an instinctive sense of what didn't happen. Part of the point of uh, my book, uh, The War of the World, is to explore a particularly important counterfactual scenario. Needless to say, we have jargon for this procedure. A what-if question. The what-if question is, what if World War II had broken out in 1938? That's at the very core of the book. I'm not giving up away too much when I say that it would have been a shorter war and many, many fewer people would have died. But now the critical thing to understand is how historians do what I have just described. How do we do it? Well, the answer is that we commune with the dead. We do. Sounds quite weird when I put it like that. To be honest, being a historian is a rather morbid, possibly psychotic uh, activity. I genuinely prefer the company of the dead. I spend much more time with dead people than with people like you. And I'm sure future psychologists will explain this in ways that are not favorable to me. <laughs> However, I have a rationale for this, which I will explain. R.G. Collingwood, who is one of the great philosophers of history produced by my old university, Oxford, once said in his wonderful brief autobiography, and I quote, historical knowledge is the reenactment of a past thought encapsulated in a context of present thoughts, which in contradicting it, confine it to a plane different from theirs. That's actually the single most important sentence ever written about historical methodology, in my view. We are reenacting past thought. And we can only do this 
by communing with the dead through the records that they have left of their past thoughts. What did it feel like to be an ethnic German in Central and Eastern Europe after 1918? That's one of the questions that I try to address in the War of the World. But historians don't just do that. The other thing that we do simultaneously in a completely different methodological way is that we try uh, to infer what Karl Hempel called covering laws about the way that uh, the human past has operated from mainly quantitative data. There is a kind of rough and ready covering law at the heart of War of the World, and it goes like this. If you have simultaneously economic volatility, ethnic disintegration, and empires in decline, each of these begins with the letter E, which makes it easy to remember, then the probability of a high uh, level of organized lethal violence is significant. Probability, not certainty. This isn't a law. It's not a model in the way that social scientists would uh, tend to, to think. It's just a statement of a rough uh, regularity. Take these things together. Economic volatility, ethnic disintegration, and empires in decline, and violence is likely to be significantly higher than under different circumstances. Now, what do futurists do, if that's what historians do in a nutshell? The answer is that they infer future scenarios on the basis of past examples and past data, but without necessarily acknowledging that the analogies they are drawing are historically inspired. They, they claim to be concerning themselves with the future, but in reality, they are as much concerned with the past as historians, because what else do they have to go on? It's not the power of prophecy with which Peter is endowed. What he is trying to do is infer from the past future plausible scenarios. Now, I don't think that's a bad procedure, and I want to make it clear that this is not the House of Commons, and I'm not here to oppose everything he says. On the contrary, we, in fact, have much in common, and being asked to do this forced me to ask myself, what don't we agree about? We've known one another for at least 10 years, and much of the time, we are in almost beautiful and perfect harmony. But it seems to me there is a methodological problem that Peter, not being a historian, may underestimate about what he does. And the problem is this. If you are constructing future scenarios on the basis of past data without adequate historical training, you are more likely to be susceptible to the kind of heuristic biases that I mentioned before. Peter's scenarios are, in fact, as he himself acknowledges, plots for unmade movies. That is what they are. And it seems to me that they are inspired as much by his own personal predilections as by any very rigorous assessment of past data. I won't go through the full list of heuristic biases of which I think he may uh, be guilty, <laughs> though it is quite tempting. I want to, because time is limited, give you a tale of five futures. The two futures that are implied in my book, and which I made explicit in an article that was published in Foreign Affairs shortly after the book was published, and the three futures envisaged in Peter's book, The Art of the Long View. My future is very simple. 
I make the point in uh, The War of the World that we can learn from the history of the 20th century that scientific and economic progress does not reduce the risk of organized lethal violence. On the contrary, despite the advances that we made economically, scientifically, and otherwise in the 20th century, we proved to be capable of unprecedented levels uh, of murderous behavior. We should learn from this that globalization is vulnerable, may even generate its uh, own destruction, that there is a potential for conflict regardless even of levels of education, and that the three things I mentioned earlier, economic volatility, ethnic disintegration, and empires in decline, can still cause high levels of violence in our time. The implicit second future is that we learn from history and make sure, or at least endeavor, uh, to make sure that these things do not coincide again. In other words, aware of the fragility of the order we call globalization, we do our best not to have a 1914. The Art of the Long View is a wonderfully stimulating book and deserves all the praise that's been heaped upon it. And it contains three future scenarios. Uh, for the period between uh, 1991 when it was written uh, and 2005. Uh, and it's fascinating to read these now, uh, three years after 2005. The, the three scenarios, Peter favors three, rather like the UN with its population projections. There's the cheerful, uh, there's a gloomy, and there's just right, the Goldilocks future. Uh, the three futures uh, have, as some of you will doubtless know from your reading, the following titles, New Empires, market world, and change without progress. I'm not sure which movies inspired the first two, but he admits that the third, the pessimistic one, was inspired by Blade Runner. It's clear that of the three, the middle Goldilocks projection has come closest to being right. It is a kind of vision of globalization. And there's much in it that I admire, an understanding of the way in which computer micro-worlds, he uses a term that hasn't really caught on, would transform the way in which the world works. There's even a 1997 financial crash, full marks. However, uh, there is a, a missing elephant, or rather giant panda. In scenario one, China, quote, goes its own way preoccupied with territorial disputes with India. In scenario two, China causes a financial crisis by defaulting on its debts to Japanese banks. And scenario number three, the Blade Runner scenario, China fights a major war with India using Pakistani weapons. The only thing that I can find to salvage uh, this story is that China in scenario three, quote, exterminated the Tibetan independence movement. Well, that may turn out to be dead right. But everything else that Peter wrote about China in his best-selling book has been wrong. And to be wrong about China is to be wrong about the single most important thing that has happened since 1991. That seems to me to illustrate not the, the perils of being Peter Schwartz, uh, on the contrary, uh, it illustrates the perils of being a futurist. The inherent impossibility of making predictions about a system as complex as the world of human beings could not be better illustrated than by this glaring omission in all three 
of the scenarios in the art of the long view. How can we work together? It seems to me we can work together, that futurists can learn from historians and historians from futurists. I think our best hope is to make historical inquiry more rigorous than it is, and I want to make it clear that I don't, in fact, regard my profession as particularly impressive when it comes to standards of scientific and scholarly rigor. Historians need to know more about chaos theory, they need to know more about complexity theory, they need to know what a power law is, and they particularly need to understand evolutionary biology. They need to learn from the sciences much more than they do. Here, I think we would be in complete agreement. But I want to conclude, ladies and gentlemen, by suggesting that futurists really do need to learn from historical method. They need to understand better that point that Collingwood made, that it's not enough just to understand the world as some kind of hydraulic system. It's important to get inside the heads of the dead. And if you don't do that, it seems to me your future scenarios are likely to be worth rather less than the paper that they're printed on. Thank you very much indeed. I hope I wasn't too... Uh... Okay, uh, well, first of all, thank you, uh, uh, both for the flattery and the uh, critique. Uh, so I have a few questions uh, to see if we understand uh, first of all, what you're saying. I want to come back uh, later to the questions of your view of the world and where it's headed and so on, which you, you touched on as well. But I want to spend a few minutes on uh, what I think was your most central point, which is the, the issue of how we think about the future and what the nature of learning from history is. Uh, so first question, uh, you alluded to uh, heuristic biases. And you know, you say, well, you could enumerate them and be fairly explicit about them. Please. Well, where to begin? <laughs> One of the, the greatest problems uh, that we have when we're thinking about the future is that we're attracted to certain scenarios uh, more than to others. Mm. We have a certain confirmation bias. I'll illustrate this point with uh, another part of your book. Uh, you were strongly attracted to the importance of the teenager. Right. Uh, and the global teenager is a key player in your book. I think that's a classic product of a strong prior, that you instinctively felt this was important because you were once a teenager when teenagers mattered. It would be typically a baby boomer who thought that teenagers would continue <laughs> to matter. They don't matter. They become less and less important with every passing year. The demographics, not only of the United States, but of China itself, make teenagers increasingly unimportant as a group. But because you had a strong prior in favor of thinking they mattered, you wrote a whole chapter about the global teenager. And I, 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 strongly, I strongly feel that the global teenager is a minor player compared with the global oldie. And I would certainly you know, say that, having addressed the major benefactors of the Hoover Institution <laughs> this morning, <laughs> who are the global oldies. Well, that's a good example. Okay. Uh, another point you made, which I think is, is actually quite profound uh, and worth exploring for a moment, I think, uh, because you, you, you know, I, I think time was running down and, and you uh, touched on it without exploring it <clears throat> further, and that is uh, what the uh, sources of learning 
in a sense, for the historical community in terms of being able to look at novelty and new things like the frontiers mm. of science and so on. And, and you touched on a few of those, biology, uh, complexity, and so on. I expand a bit more how you would see those kinds of ideas coming to play in the world of history. Because I think it is a challenge, you know, bringing these worlds together. Well, it's, it's most easy to do uh, if you're, uh, like me, concerned with economic and, and financial history, Peter, because uh, th there's no question that, that uh, when it comes to trying to understand financial uh, crises, there are all kinds of benefits to understanding yeah, complexity. Uh, that, that's to say that in many ways financial systems do behave a lot like complex systems in the natural world. Uh, the, the regularity of financial crises does not uh, follow the, the bell curve normal distribution. There are very fat tails in the history of finance. And this is a recurrent feature that takes you all the way from the uh, South Sea bubble of 1720 to the present. Uh, and so simply understanding a little bit about uh, distributions of extreme events, understanding uh, a little bit about how systems can uh, become critical seems to me absolutely essential if you want to if you want to understand how financial crises occur. That's actually more helpful than understanding the theory of modern finance as exemplified by the Black-Scholes formula because actually the theories of option pricing is based on a completely false notion about the distribution of financial outcomes to the effect that it does follow the bell curve. So that's one, that's one example. Chaos theory was something that inspired me when I was writing a book called Virtual History uh, because I was acutely aware uh, of the sensitivity uh, of political and social systems to initial conditions and the proverbial butterfly flapping its wings can cause the, uh, the hurricane at the other end of the earth. Uh, it's important that historians understand this because historians have their own heuristic biases. Uh, please make, let me make that clear. One of our heuristic biases is that we really do want great events to have great causes. We hate the idea that a war as big as the First World War could have origins that date back no further than July or June of 1914. We want big origins for big wars. We want the origins to be in at least the 1890s, maybe even the 1870s, and I've read books that date the origins of the First World War back to 1815, which is 100 years before it broke out. Now that seems to me to be based on a fundamental misunderstanding of the historical process. That a small misjudgment, and I think there was a small misjudgment, on the part of political actors in European capitals in 1914 sufficed to cause four and a quarter years uh, of carnage. One last thought, uh, which is particularly important to me at the moment, is understanding evolutionary biology. If you are writing, as I am at the moment, a history of uh, world finance, or rather a financial history of the world, I think that's a better way of putting it. You can it, plug the name of the book, it's okay. Which is going to be entitled, The Ascent of Money. <laughs> If you're old enough, you'll remember Bronowski's Ascent of Man. It's a, an ironic pun on that. 4,000 years of financial history strongly resemble uh, the history of evolution in the natural world. It's almost all there. There are, there are great dyings, there is speciation, there is natural selection. Uh, and one can think, therefore, of the story of, of, of financial history as a very compressed uh, evolutionary story. There are differences. Some of the uh, mutation is conscious. It's Lamarckian, not Darwinian. But it's nevertheless, it seems to me, a very helpful way of thinking about a profoundly important historical process. I hardly need to say how important it is this year. I, I might say, Stuart and I are big fans of a, of a book called Why Big Fierce Animals Are Rare, which is all about, in fact, precisely that kind of evolutionary thrust. Right. 
Uh, okay, pushing on. Uh, you, you, moving now across, in some sense, the boundary between methodology and, and substance. Uh, you said something, I think, uh, very important, but it was in the context of, of, of alluding to uh, methodological issues, and that had to do with the, the notion of the future, your view of the future was simple, that science and technology had not reduced uh, the risk uh, of increasing violence. But you also have a, clearly the example in modern history of mutually assured destruction in which we avoided the cataclysmic war. How do you deal with the, the differing effects of science and technology in that arena as well as others that may have reduced the levels of violence from as a result of economic progress and uh, better health care, water, environment, all those kinds of sources of conflict that emerge from advances in science? Well, there are two ways of thinking about this. One is that mutually assured destruction might easily have led to mutually assured destruction, and it only just failed to by a hair's breadth on at least two occasions. I mean, one can't, again, allow the retrospective fallacy to, to turn the Cold War into the long peace. Uh, I, I'm certainly old enough to remember how very unpeaceful it felt to be steering uh, the abyss of, of nuclear destruction uh, in, the, in the face. I, I must say that the more one thinks about the history of the Cold War, the more one becomes aware of how uh, close it came to disaster, particularly in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, and although the stakes uh, weren't quite so high in 1973, the nuclear arsenals were substantially larger, so the risks were even more terrifying. So I'm not sure I buy the idea that just because post hoc uh, there was no uh, Third World War, ergo hoc, therefore, it was because deterrence worked. I think we were lucky. And 1914 could have happened uh, in the early 60s or the early 70s. The other way of looking at it is that, of course, there was a Third World War. It was just, and this is a point I make in, in the War of the World, it was the Third World's war that having established arsenals that were too powerful to use on each other, the superpowers waged a war that was just as destructive in terms of human life as the First World War, indirectly, by proxy, through a succession of Third World countries. Uh, and so in a sense, it, the, the, the volume of violence didn't decline in the world after the invention of the atomic bomb. It, it didn't decline in a substantial way. By the end of the century, there was still the potential for genocide, and it could still be carried out with extremely primitive weapons in countries like Cambodia uh, or Rwanda. So that's, that's the, the double argument that I would make. Well, actually, you, you've, in, in your answer, you've actually answered my last question as well, because you had alluded to the, the forces of economic volatility, ethnic conflict, and empires in decline as the powerful engines of violence and uh, expressions of hatred, etc. Uh, and the question I really had for you was, uh, what was the difference in the first half and second half of the 20th century? And you're basically saying, if I read you right, not much. Yeah, location, location, location. Okay. That was the difference, because all that happened was that the violence, which in the first half of the century was heavily concentrated uh, in Central and Eastern Europe and Manchuria, Korea. There, there are these two great killing zones at each end of Eurasia. The, these zones finally become off-limits uh, in the early 1950s. Uh, Germany and Korea are partitioned, and it's realized that fighting over these areas is in some ways too destructive to, uh, to happen again. But the violence has just moved and takes place in Guatemala, uh, in Cambodia, in Angola, and so on. Uh, so that's the simple answer. And of course, that's why my first uh, gloomy scenario about the future is that this could happen somewhere else. And the obvious place today where there is economic volatility aplenty, 
ethnic disintegration in full swing and an empire in decline is, of course, the Middle East. Thank you. Got your summary? Okay, well, it seems to me you're, you're talking about two obviously related uh, sets of ideas, and the first has to do with how one thinks about the future. I think the uh, wonderfully eloquent, eloquent description of the planet of the past, uh, very hard to get to. Uh, we don't know yet how to travel there. And so we can only get there by empathy, as it were. And, and I thought the, the empathy with the dead was a very eloquent way of putting it. I think you also uh, clearly uh, challenged uh, how we think about the future in terms of the depth of understanding of history and what one can draw from an extremely complex, rich record and what meaning one draws from that. And particularly, I think, you know, uh, and, and one of the things that I admire about your work is the willingness to consider and learn from alternative interpretations of the past, uh, different ways of thinking about uh, what happened and what might have happened, uh, as you did both in virtual history and at various points in the War of the World. Uh, I, I think you also rightly drew uh, attention to the source of novelty that ought to inform even historical thinking when one draws conclusions for the future, and that is sources of new knowledge from the sciences and so on. And I think you identified several that I find particularly important, biological thinking and evolutionary thinking, complexity and chaos, and that line of thought. Uh, I think, obviously, you also had a critique, I think, of some of my work. You know, I, I think and I'll come back to uh, particularly the issue of China and how and why, but I think it is indicative of something which you touched on uh, and which I'll come back to when I speak. And then finally, I think you've also provided a framework for thinking about uh, the recent history of the last century and what it implies, and particularly the focus on these things. And I think these, this was new in your book. I don't think people had put this particular story together of these three forces of uh, economic volatility and its impact on societies and the social fabric, the impact of ethnic and religious conflict and its virulence uh, and, and depth, and the inability of empires to manage the world, as it were, and sustain an order in both the decline of Britain and the failure of the U.S. to rise to the imperial challenge. Uh, and that that leads one to uh, ask serious questions about uh, what may happen uh, not very far ahead, particularly looking around what we see as events like financial crises and wars in Iraq. Yeah. Is well, that a... It, 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 I'm told I'm supposed to say, you got it at this point. <laughs> but as I never say, you got it under any circumstances, what I'll say is, yes, but there's a, a, a couple of points that I would like to just throw in. <laughs> you got it, my foot. Uh, <laughs> one of them is actually self-criticism. Uh, I wondered if you'd spot the flaw in my argument. Uh, perhaps somebody else has. I don't think I can convincingly show that you would have got China any more right if you had been a historian. Well, I'm going to make that argument myself. <laughs> Rule number one, I'm from Glasgow, get your retaliation in first. <laughs> I wouldn't make the other point. You're probably going to make it. I should leave you one. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> no, no, I'll leave you the other one. Are you basically satisfied? Or is there oh, I'm always, I'm always satisfied with what Peter says. That was, that was a mere quibble. You're up. Right. Can I borrow your pen, Peter? I don't have one. I borrowed it from Stuart, please. I, I said to my wife, Kathleen, when we came over here, uh, I'm, I'm either brave or very stupid uh, to take on Neil Ferguson. Uh, you have 
seen why I feel really honored to be on the same stage with Neil. I truly admire his work. I've read, I think, everything since The Pity of War. Uh, most of us who write nonfiction wish we could write books with such scholarship, depth, originality, elegance of prose. They're real page-turners. Page he always makes me think. And I, I highly recommend reading The War of the World, which you can buy out there. Uh, and indeed, this debate uh, came about from a dinner that uh, Neil and I had about 18 months ago while I was beginning to work on a new book. Uh, and that book was optimistically titled The Case for Optimism. I had just finished The War of the World and was shattered. Uh, uh, it uh, really challenged my thinking, as each of his books has done, uh, forced me to uh, reflect on my basic assumptions about where we were headed and what it meant, um, and it basically stopped my book. I said, all right, I have got to confront uh, the issues that Neil raises in his book uh, and uh, really think them through in a very fundamental way. Uh, and I have spent the last 18 months doing that, so in a sense, you are part of my thought process. By having this debate, I have forced myself to reach some conclusions about the arguments which uh, Neil so eloquently made in his book. And as Neil rightly puts, he does alternative pasts, I do alternative futures, uh, but here's where I want to uh, take a small uh, uh, line of difference, uh, and that is that, uh, well, you know, you talked about the land of the dead. Well, we futurists have imaginary friends. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, imaginary friends in the future, as it were. And, and that is that we, on the one hand, really do need to do good history, and I will uh, allow that from time to time uh, we fail in that. But I spend most of my time reading either history or science, uh, the things that change the future, the frontiers of the new, and, you know, we have to live in science with the laws of physics. There's no real beam me up, Scotty, but, you know, uh, yes to the flip phone. We have what Star Trek saw then. So imagination sometimes works. And Neil, unlike most historians, brings imagination to his task. That's indeed what part of the virtual history task is. Uh, and indeed, in the case of China, mine was a failure of imagination not a failure, I think, of history. In fact, we were probably too bound by our view of the limits of how much uh, China could evolve. Uh, and if anything, I would say many of my historic mistakes have been not from a failure of good historical analysis, but a failure of imagination. Um, but I will allow both of those, frankly, because uh, uh, I have made both classes of mistakes. So now let me turn a, a bit to uh, how we think about things differently, uh, in particular with respect to the book and some of the arguments which you've made uh, about what's shaping modern times and history. And I think if, if I would characterize a very simple framework for thinking about how I think you see it versus how I see it, and which leads to different scenarios, is I think you see the momentum of history as on a kind of downward slope, or at best flat, uh, with the possibility that we could get it right and reverse direction. And I, on the other hand, see the momentum of history basically on an upward trajectory uh, with the possibility that we could get it wrong and head down. So your uncertainty is mainly on the upside and mine is mainly on the downside. And in fact, I agree with everything in the war of the world until we get to the epilogue, which is what deals with the last 50 years. It basically, the book brilliantly covers uh, the run-up to World War I and all the way through uh, the Korean War as one, in a sense, continuous context of conflict. Uh, and this, and you touched on this, I think, in, in your remarks, has to do with how we view the second half of the 20th century uh, versus the first half. I think you see them as mostly not very different, and I see them as the second half as representing real progress, uh, where we have meaningfully fewer deaths, for example. 
Uh, in the first half, I think in the book, your number is 160, 180 million. The second half, it's closer to 10 to 20. What that means is the first half of the sun century, we killed off somewhere on the order of 5% of humanity, 1 in 20. In the second half, it was one-sixth of one percent. Now, if you were, you know, the mother of the soldier who died among those, or the family who was raped in uh, uh, Bosnia, that matters a lot. But I submit that there's a huge difference between killing one in 20 and one-sixth of one percent. And part of the reason is that we made real progress in human institutions that constrained the violence, that limited the conflict. Part, it was mutually assured destruction, but part, it was the rule of law that limited particularly transborder conflicts to very few. Most were civil wars. Uh, they were ethnic and violent and particularly ugly, but I submit that nothing reached the levels of the Holocaust in that respect in World War II. We also had much wider prosperity with vastly more people enjoying the benefits of progress and much more freedom and democracy in many places. And by the way, it was also more eco-friendly. So, you know, we've seen uh, a lot of progress. So, Unless we blow it, we have a chance of getting it better. <clears throat> but I will say this. I want to set the bar even higher, because something you don't touch on your book, which I think is now an issue for the future, is climate change. And so uh, that could be another set of sources of conflict. And if we don't deal with that, uh, then we're leaving something very big. If China was the elephant of the last uh, decade, climate change is the elephant of the decades ahead. So. I think there are real powerful forces for progress. And if we think about the last 30 or 40 years, we've seen enormous changes that have surprised us. The rise of the women's movement and how it's transformed the role of women in America. So today, four out of five Americans say they would vote for Hillary Clinton without thinking about these women. It's not 100%, but it's four out of five. Uh, we've seen the population bust. We've lowered the population expectations for the future. We saw the end of the Cold War. Basically, the Soviet Union said, eh, not worth fighting anymore. Gave up, went away without violent revolution. And we've seen the dramatic transformations in China. All of these things have left the world in a much better place. And very hard to have anticipated. I got it wrong in China. Um, so it is this sense that we can make very real progress. So if we think about the issue of prosperity, we have a long history of increasing prosperity. More countries are in the game. First, it was the US, Europe, Japan, now China and India. Uh, lots of new technology that increases productivity. Knowledge is spreading around the world. Wikipedia is the best new anti-poverty tool we've ever seen, spreading access to knowledge everywhere at essentially no cost. We see the difference in places like Singapore versus Nigeria, where knowledge drives growth and resources fail you. So many more people have a stake today in the system in preserving what we're doing. <clears throat> and indeed, <clears throat> I would argue that even today's financial crisis, one possible outcome is real reform. Again, part of the learning process of our system. I think the second big thing is that we've learned how to contain conflict. We avoided the big nuclear war. We've had very few real transborder conflicts, though we are, have been involved in one right now. We have more means for intervention. And a great example of getting it right is what's going on today in Kosovo. Here's Kosovo declaring independence. And, oh, by the way, the last time that's happened, there was wholesale slaughter. This time, as a result of the previous intervention, we're not doing that. The Serbians aren't slaughtering the Kosovars because they learned something along the way. They'll get hit if they do. And so, in fact, the system of intervention and prevention of conflict is working. Um, we see it happening. 
And I think we'll be chastened by the Iraq war. You know, uh, we're going to find that unilateralism doesn't work. So we're seeing improvement in the international security systems, improved governance. More and more countries are better governed. China and India today compared before, maybe even Russia. New regional governance structures, the EU, the OAU, global level, the WTO, Security Council, IMF, World Bank, NATO. And in fact, one of your articles recently, which I loved, and reading Neil is a real delight regularly, it publishes a great deal, you talk about uh, a world of powerlessness and uh, that could become anarchy, hmm? and like the Dark Ages. But in fact, I see, and this goes back to the notion of complexity, a complex network, adaptive learning systems, bottoms-up emerging system, uh, not top-down imperial system of many actors, governments, multinationals, small businesses, NGOs, supranational institutions, in a complex web of power, not an empire. And then finally, the climate challenge, which I put on the table. You know, this is a very urgent issue. Some of you were here last year when I debated Ralph Kavanaugh on nuclear power. Uh, I think this is a global crisis of great urgency. And it's not hard to imagine how it could become a source of conflict. The, the, the history could easily be there. Imagine if the Tibetan uh, highlands begin to dry up, the Mekong begins to dry up, the Chinese dams begin to affect the Vietnamese downstream. And this is, you know, here we have the exact ingredients you've talked about. The Vietnamese and the Chinese don't like each other very much. And you could imagine a conflict over access to water. On the other hand, climate change could be the shared threat that really unites us that uh, and creates a new environment for collaboration. China and India and in the United States face the same challenge. We have huge technological resources and capabilities. I can easily imagine the scenario that we work together rather than work apart. With, rather than conflict, it's collaboration. Uh, and that has happened in recent history as well. So I think many of the technology options in a world where we both want more electricity, more cars, are a plausible scenario, and particularly given the outcome of this election. All three candidates are in favor of dealing with climate change. We could see a fundamental change in the very near future. So, I see a very different future than I think that dark future that is implicit in the war of the world. I see a positive second half of the 20th century, leading to a remarkable 21st century, not utopia, but continued progress. You know, uh, I can see it being driven by increasing global integration, technology progress, the challenge of climate change, and sustained economic growth with some ups and downs, but doubling per capita income by 2030. Not at all implausible. New technologies like synthetic biology leading to a new industrial revolution. We had Craig Venter here last month talking about how we were going to reinvent the industrial society and be able to essentially make the next several billion people rich without destroying the world's ecosystems using new biological production methods. In fact, we were just at a, a meeting the other day seeing literally the first bacteria producing diesel fuel, uh, bubbles of diesel coming out. Basically, these bacteria shit diesel. Uh, and not a distant dream, but already out there today. So we could see major development in the new in infrastructure of clean energy it's a bit like war in that respect, but a war on climate change that spurs growth and leads to high employment, leading to narrowing income gaps. You see growth in China continue to widen and deepen, maybe even spread to South America and Africa. U.S. would back off perhaps our missile base in Europe to pissing off the Russians. A big thing is the question of how many of the countries really work within the systems of international institutions. And one can even imagine the evolution of new security organizations that come out of NATO, including the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China. Uh, maybe even a new global EPA coming out of Asia. These things could contain and limit ethnic violence. Uh, perhaps 
even begin to shape uh, new forms of support looking toward Africa and Latin America. Uh, there's a brilliant new book uh, by Paul Collier uh, called The Bottom Billion, in which he argues that we need the equivalent of a Marshall Plan for the poor of the world. And this includes not merely uh, aid, but also security support, because obviously what's happening in Africa and big parts of the world are the kind of conflict that I think you talk about, and without support security structures, it will be impossible to have levels of development. But all of that happens best in a multilateral context, which I think can actually develop. So I think you can see how the momentum of history, I think, of the last half of the 20th century uh, perhaps may carry us forward toward greater progress. And perhaps at mid-century we would look back and say the world is more peaceful, prosperous, equitable, and sustainable. And we would thank Neil Ferguson for making clear what the hurdles were ahead. Uh, and fortunately, we would find that unlike his pessimism, we were actually up to the challenge and a better world was the result. Thank you. Well, it was a great pleasure to listen to uh, Peter. It's my, my duty now to throw some questions at you. Uh, my, my first one is your, your faith in, in technology is, is, of course, critical to your argument. Isn't one of the difficulties that war was, in fact, the great driver of technological innovation in the mid-century? And it's far from clear uh, that technology necessarily and always has benign Pacific outcomes. Uh, in fact, technology is strangely neutral about our future as a species. It, it can be as capable of destroying us as of enriching us and uh, making our lives more comfortable. How, how do you grapple with that Janus-faced character of technology in human history? Well, I, I think you're right. I mean, it's, it's a both and. In fact, if you look at, I'm an engineer by education, uh, not a historian. Uh, and if you look at the history of engineering, it began with fortifications. I mean, that's what the first engineers were about, is building forts and then building things to break the forts. So that's basically what it was all about. Uh, and so it's not a surprise that the frontiers of technology are at the frontiers of warfare as well. Um, and indeed, you know, there's no question that the downsides, both deliberately and potentially accidentally, of technology are obvious, whether they are, as we've seen, nuclear weapons or possible biological weapons or other things we have yet to imagine. So uh, I don't have any doubt that the destructive potentials both today and yet in the future of technology are very real. That having been said, it is also the case that much of what we today take to be a much better life is the result of technology. None of us would want to go to a dentist of 1900 today, you know, and you know, one only needs to think about what drilling would be like without anesthesia to imagine, just to see the smallest uh, grain of technological progress. But I think one of the best examples you can see is what's happened, for example, with the environment. Uh, you know, I think it is one of the challenges ahead, but if you look at what's happened as a result of uh, things like the Clean Air Act and technology that's come along, equivalent in the UK and in the United States, today the air in the Bay Area is much better than it was 30 years ago. The Bay is cleaner than it was 30 years ago. They're fishing in the Thames, which they couldn't do 15 or 20 years ago. The air in London is, you know, ain't perfect, but it isn't like the coal smog of the 1950s. And we've made the automobile of today 90% cleaner than the automobile of 25 years ago. So, you know, I think it's a both and. I think 
human progress depends upon uh, enormous continuing advance in technology. We can't solve the climate change problem. I don't think we can end poverty without doing it, and so on. But we can get it wrong. The biofuels mess that's creating some of the rice crisis that we're having right now is a good example of getting things wrong. So technology doesn't automatically guarantee a good outcome. What we do with it is obviously what's critical. Yeah, you, you have to acknowledge though that much of the progress in medical science, you mentioned dentistry, but, but progress in anesthesia, progress in that field was again accelerated by, by warfare. Absolutely. And this seems to be, to, to, to be one of the recurrent features of our predicament, that uh, it seems to take a massive cataclysm to, to make our technological innovation accelerate. But th there's a piece of sleight of hand that I want to pick you up on. Uh, you simplified my argument by dividing the 20th century into two halves, a very destructive half and a relatively less destructive half. But the book actually tries to avoid that periodization by, by suggesting a period from around 1904 to 1953 of, of mega-death, and then this uh, lower-level conflict, the Third World's War, uh, in actually less populous places. The problem is the period before it that you don't say anything about. Uh, aren't you ever worried that you might be like one of those pre-1914 intellectuals who said, war is now impossible? It was Norman Angel, wasn't it? Norman Angel was one. There, there was a chap named Ivan Bloch who argued that war had now become technologically far too destructive to be sustainable for any length of time. In fact, there were a whole group of people who came to the conclusion uh, that technological progress had actually made great power war highly unlikely. And indeed, you could see why they thought that, because from the 1870s onwards, the amount of war, and particularly the risk of great power war, seemed to be declining. Uh, something quite interesting, that financial markets were much less nervous in the decade before 1914 than they had been in the 1870s and 1880s. So if we go back a little bit earlier, isn't there a sort of alarmingly similar scenario, I hate to use the word scenario, a period uh, in, in which a futurist Peter Schwartz would have said, it's all going to be fine. Technology is going to solve our problems. We're all going to live in peace. And then 1914 comes along, and the books are all remaindered. How do you address that problem? Hey, uh, the, the best example we can see is uh, Palm Beach 2000 for the kinds of events that can deflect history. And so and unquestionably, uh, I think you're right uh, on this one. And, and I, I see very much the risk here. Uh, indeed, if you'd been here in 1908, you would have been enthralled by all the new technologies, the automobile, electricity, radio, uh, the telephone, uh, uh, airplanes, you know, and we would have just had Einstein published, you know, his epic year, and the world was about to change. Globalization was very real. You know, travel, and the famous quote, I think you, you have the quote from Keynes that, you know, uh, soon thereafter a man could go anywhere in the British Empire right. and, you know, not even need any money because everywhere it was all good British sterling was available. So I think uh, the analogy is actually rather apt, and it is worrying. I, I think it is genuinely worrying. But I think it is a matter of choice. Uh, that is, I think, uh, what we saw then, and I think your book rightly argues it, was staggering misperceptions and misjudgments on the part of political leaders. Now, indeed, I think we've just seen one of those catastrophes of misjudgment uh, and incompetence on the part of political leadership play out in Iraq. And indeed, those events are genuinely worrying, and I think you rightly pointed to uh, where the biggest risks in the world lie today. Uh, and we have certainly exacerbated it. But it may be an opportunity for the world and we to learn a lesson at a fairly high price, I might add, but not as catastrophic as, say, Vietnam was in human death, from our point of view at least. Uh, but having said that, uh, I think the analogy ought to give us pause 
uh, because I think there is enough merit in it. And then we ought to be thinking hard about how we not uh, follow that path of kind of cascading events and misperceptions into a war no one wanted. Well, I'm glad you acknowledge that part of my, my objective in writing a book like The War of the World is, is precisely to make sure that I'm wrong. Uh, in other words, that the objective is to force people to think about the historical process in such a way that they avoid War of the World, the sequel. Uh, but th there's a, and a part of your argument that I'm, I'm puzzled by, and that is your, your optimism about the, the question of climate change. Uh, wh when you make the point that things have got so much better in, uh, in England or in California, that, that's because uh, the industrial world has been relocated to, to Asia. Uh, and anybody who spends any time uh, in East Asia uh, will tell you that uh, the pea supers of old London uh, are nothing compared with the kind of pollution that's being created uh, as a fifth of humanity embarks on a far more rapid industrialization than English speakers ever dreamt of. I mean, this is all being done at uh, a breakneck speed, and it seems to me that the, the, the optimism that you have, that this is all going to be resolved by, I don't know, microbes that, that shit diesel is hard to... <laughs> I have to tell you that the idea that that's going to solve our problems is a stretch for me. I really struggle with that. Though I'm sure Craig Venter is a very smart guy. The law of unintended consequences tells me that his uh, diesel shitting microbes will end up destroying mankind, taking over the world. I don't know. I don't like the sound of any of this at all. And I, I, you know, I know what H.G. Wells would say about those microbes if he were here. Well, look, the, the issue of China and the environment and pollution is, is probably one of the biggest challenges, not only for China, but for the world. And how do we you solve know? that? Because you didn't really say that they, they don't, aren't part of this wonderful new democratic network system of global governance. Yes, they are. I oh, think they, they are. are, as a matter of fact. Oh, I missed that. And, well, in fact, what? I, you know, I thought they were still ruled by a communist party with a one-party state. And, yes, they uh, are, but they're also engaged in a great variety of efforts already dealing with the consequences of climate change, both in collaborative efforts right here at UC Berkeley, for example, and in a network of scientists and uh, basically technical people in a variety of different domains uh, trying to deal with the shared problems that we both face. And for them, the biggest issue is coal. They've got to clean up their coal. They've got to find ways to capture it, the carbon and sequester it. They need clean vehicles. Uh, they have exactly the same needs for technology that we do. And so my view is fairly straightforward. There's no, it ain't a done deal by any means, but very much the same technology challenges that they face, we face, and that we are likely to be working together in one way or another, or competing, you know, but then driving each other to do better in that sense, to develop the technologies of things like clean coal and clean cars, because neither one of us will make it without them. And one already sees at least the seeds of that in collaborative efforts beginning. What if there's another outcome, though? Let's build a scenario in which uh, something much more like the past uh, recurs, in which rival empires fight over increasingly scarce natural resources and do not adopt new and more benign technologies because it's just too damn difficult. Uh, what makes you so sure that we won't be quarreling over uh, coal and oil, and particularly oil and natural gas, much in the way that in previous eras men fought wars uh, over coal, or for that matter, sugar, which was a great source of energy in the, in the 17th century? Well, look, it was access to oil that triggered World War II. 
you know, in, 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 with the Japanese in particular. So I think the risks are very real. Though interestingly enough, I think the risks are greater between, say, China and Russia and access to Russian natural gas for reasons of substituting for dirty coal, cleaner natural gas, and the issue of, you know, who really owns Siberia may become an issue, and that one worries me as a source of conflict. Well, I, I think at this point the, the, the time is, is up, and, uh, and that means that I have to now... Uh, it's really quite a challenge, this. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's almost impossible for anybody with jet lag to, to do. But I've now got to summarize Peter's arguments in such a way that he will say, you got it. So um, my understanding is that, that, that your argument is, is as follows. First, that we, we both methodologically are engaged in, in the same activity. We use our imaginations. And we use our imaginations to try... Uh, to draw inferences from uh, past data. The inferences I draw uh, are about how the dead thought, uh, and the inferences you draw are about your imaginary friends. <laughs> and I have a very good doctor that you can see about that. Um, so that's the first point. In a sense, we're both engaged in, in, in challenges that require our brain's computational power to, to do things that no other uh, computational power can, can do, and, and we're not actually ever going to be tremendously uh, uh, effective in that sense. The, the, the China question is, is the interesting one. Uh, you put that down to a failure of imagination. I think we should try and talk more about that, because it seems to me to be at the very heart of what we're discussing here. And I still don't really know if, had I asked myself that question with a somewhat different set of historical uh, assumptions, I would have come up with a better answer than you. So that's the first point. The second point is, I'm a pessimist, and you're an optimist. That's how I uh, interpreted much of what you said, uh, and that you take precisely the same data that I take uh, from the 20th century and come to a, a fundamentally pan-glossian conclusion, <laughs> whereas I am Cassandra, and all I can do is predict yet more carnage. I think this is a legitimate point, though it risks discrediting us both. Uh, if we are simply writing books that express our fundamentally different temperaments, you, the cheerful West Coaster, me, the gloomy, despondent Calvinist Scott, then it <laughs> there may not be any need to read these books. You just look, look at our bios on Wiki and say, he's a pessimist, he's an optimist, that's all you need to know. Uh, so that, that seems to me to be a somewhat problematic proposition. I hope that I try to transcend as best I can my, my temperamental difficulties. My, uh, the Calvinist legacy is one that it's hard to, to shake off. But that's, I think, at the heart of, of, uh, of the, the second part of your argument. The third and final part of your argument uh, is that technology is the driver. In your approach to scenario building, you always list a bunch of drivers. They're usually about seven or eight. But, but it always seems to me that the one that you instinctively want to put at the top uh, and give pride of place to is technology, which I suppose is a reflection of your, your background uh, as an engineer. And hence the notion that out of all the troubles that we currently face, there will be technological solutions and that with one bound or one bacterium, we'll be free. <laughs> Is that a fair summary of your argument? What do you think? <laughs> I well, think it's probably an unfair summary of your argument. Oh, well, no. and, well, the truth is, in substance, of course, it actually is. Except I wouldn't say that, in fact, I, I think it is Panglossian versus a, a kind of Dewar-Scott. Uh, I think it is actually uh, the relative weight one gives to the novel 
versus the methods of history. The, the force, not the methods, the force of history. How much, how malleable is the human condition? How much can we really reinvent uh, what is possible? <clears throat> and uh, my impression is you would give greater weight to the force of history and those things that are enduring, and I might give greater weight to those things are, that are more novel and that challenge some of those things that have persisted for a very long time. Just with one little footnote which occurs to me, one point that you've made recently very eloquently is that, that you may live to be 150, uh, which, uh, which is uh, an exciting thought, uh, though I'm not sure our debate will be that good in 50 years. <laughs> if I can't promise to be anything other than gaga if I'm still around. But, but you know, if, if that is possible, you might think that it would radically change our, our human condition. Yet the, the lesson of history is that making people live longer doesn't radically change the human condition. We, we actually already have done this because life expectancy at the beginning of the 20th century, an average male life expectancy even in, uh, in developed or relatively advanced European societies was still amazingly low by our standards. Late 40s. Right, so we got from 37 to where we are now, which in, in, in uh, even the, the more deprived parts of Scotland is still in the upper 60s. It hasn't, I think, radically changed the world that, that we've achieved this. I don't think that we are, in fact, uh, significantly more benign. I don't think our societies are significantly improved by the fact that people live a lot longer. So this, is, this seems to me to illustrate precisely the point that you make. Big changes in our technological or biological circumstances seem to leave us un altered as human beings and the dark forces within us that incline people towards uh, acts of violence or irrational political decisions which are tremendously important they don't seem to we don't seem to be any wiser we're definitely older but I don't think that we're wiser I'm not sure you know you have people now who live multi-generationally in other words there are people today who remember the worlds of the 50s and the 40s and even the 30s. And I think we have that process and possibility of intergenerational learning far more extensively and far more deeply than we ever have before. More 90-year-olds who are around uh, teaching their great-grandchildren uh, something of the world in which they once encountered. So I think that there is uh, an opportunity, not necessarily universally taken, but I do see it happening, and I see it happening frequently of this kind of intergenerational learning that you know we had lots of... Uh, forgetting as generation after generation died and we had to repeat the crises that uh, happened again and again and not to say that there's universal learning but I think that there is a kind of uh, adaptive process that as we live longer we learn more and more deeply. Which sounds like an argument for the, uh, the, uh, the 71 year old rather than the 46 year old in the presidential uh, election but I'll uh, leave, politics, uh, <laughs> leave politics out of that. I knew politics would get here. Um, you guys have been characterizing each other, and um, what hasn't been mentioned is that Peter is an old SDSer, and uh, basically a, a liberal at a cellular level. Um, uh, I was at Columbia today. Yesterday was the day. There you go. <laughs> yeah. And, and Neil, for a while there, you were the darling of the neoconservatives in, in this country. Um, I'm not sure I was, actually. I was are rather at, uncomfortable at, company for them. We, could, <laughs> we can talk about that. Hoover Institution, I remember you recommending in some op-ed that uh, John Kerry should win because he was so inept that he would soon be replaced by a good Republican. <laughs> well, actually, what I argued in, the, in that article was that D George W. Bush was so inept that we really should replace him and not give him a second With term. Anything, yeah, that right, was one of the true. more prescient pieces <laughs> I wrote in 2004. But is, is there, um, does pessimism and conservatism 
blend it all? Does optimism and liberalism blend it all? Is this it all part of what we're talking about besides engineers and the liberal arts guy? Well, I think if we are going to talk about our, our as it were, ideological priors as well as our cultural background, which, which historians are trained to do. I mean, one, one tries to put one's cards on the table. Full disclosure, I've, I've done that in all my books. Full disclosure, my grandfather was in the Highland regiments in the, in the trenches on the Western Front. Full disclosure, my family had substantial contacts uh, and involvement with the history uh, of the British Empire. Full disclosure, it's not a secret. I was an ardent Thatcherite uh, in the 1980s and have certainly been seen as, as being on the right since then. Though I don't think in American terms I'm a conservative at all. Uh, that this is a word that means quite different things on the two sides of the Atlantic. I'm a liberal fundamentalist. I come from the, the 19th century Gladstonian tradition in British politics, the 18th century tradition of Adam Smith and the Scottish Enlightenment. And I tend to make my judgments uh, about political parties and political leaders on a fairly pragmatic basis. Are they in favor of the free market? And are they, prefer, are they prepared to defend political liberty against regimes that threaten it? That was, those are the two key questions in the 1980s. I think they're the, the key questions today. So I'm rather wary of being classified as a typical pessimistic conservative because I see myself more as a rather old-fashioned liberal, a liberal in the, uh, in the Scottish 18th and 19th century sense of the word rather than in the Barack Obama sense of the word. And, what kind of liberal are you? Well, you know, I, I think you, you, you put your finger on part of my history, but not part of what happened subsequently. Indeed, yes, I was SDS, and, you know, if in the 60s you weren't, you were missing the game, right? Um, and, you know, you, you were there in your own form, in your own barricades, as it were. Uh, that having been said, uh, what I happened to me uh, was a lot of learning along the way, but not in the sense of, you know, a uh, liberal mugged by history, as it were, uh, and now conservative. What I began to learn was the nature of complex dynamics. I took my background in fluid mechanics and tried to understand how actually history works, how the future unfolds. I spent 10 years at SRI, and it would be hard to, uh, and I, I can tell you it was a remarkable moment when uh, I was in the boardroom of Shell thinking back to those moments when we were occupying Fairweather Hall at Columbia or when I was in the uh, executive uh, dining room of the CIA uh, uh, thinking back to those moments because I think my thought process evolved, not so much ideologically uh, but in terms of methodology, how I approached the question. Uh, and it was when I really began to deal with the question of uncertainty, moving from a world that was predictable in its fashion to a world that was both malleable and uncertain. And indeed, you know, my background, look, uh, I think my friends know, I was born in a refugee camp in Germany, concentration camp survivors and slave laborers. And you have to be pretty churlish not to be optimistic if you've climbed out of that kind of background, you know, that your parents suffered what my parents suffered and, and where I began my life and to see what I have experienced that the world at least afforded me the possibility of, which I took, but which if I said, gee, I'm pessimistic based on that history, I would have to be systematically blind to the, own, the, the possibility that I enjoyed. I have to just pick you up on that very briefly, and then we'll go to some questions from, from the audience. Uh, I, I'm glad you mentioned your, your parents' experience. I must say, that, that would make me far more skeptical than you are of the, the benefits of, of, of science and technology, because you have to ask yourself, which country in the world was in the forefront of scientific uh, and technological advance in the 1920s? 
and indeed early 1930s. Where were the universities uh, most sophisticated in the realm of the natural sciences between the world wars? The answer is Germany. Germany had uh, a commanding lead when it came to Nobel Prizes in the hard sciences. It was far ahead of the United States until refugees began to arrive, uh, predominantly Jewish refugees, from the German universities uh, in the American universities. Anybody who knows the history of the mid-20th century, and particularly the extraordinary role of Germany, that most advanced of European countries, has to end up, it seems to me, pessimistic. Uh, certainly <laughs> pessimistic about science and technology, no? All right, well, here's a question from, uh, <laughs> from Louis Rossetto. What is the next China? What will 20 years from now we be looking back on and saying, that was the elephant, we didn't even see it? You've written a book about this, haven't you? Well, what are the inevitable surprises? Mm. The, I mean, I, I basically said climate change is the one uh, in terms of uh, one that it will be world-shaping. But I think there's another one that we're in the midst of right now that we, we can't see quite yet. And, and you and I were talking about this backstage. Um, if the financial crisis that we are in continues down the course that it may be on toward yet a much deeper crisis, then there is the real possibility that uh, a long-term historical shift that was almost inevitable with the rise of China and India of a rebalancing of the world financial world uh, may take place in weeks, not decades. Uh, and that uh, the shift of the geopolitical and geoeconomic landscape uh, where all the pools of capital flow and the control of the flow of capital moves out of democratic hands into state-controlled hands, from market hands uh, of the New York markets, the London markets, into the hands of the Chinese, the Kuwaitis, the Singaporeans, the people with the great pool, the Russians, uh, and that that uh, could transform the landscape of the world in a rather fundamental way. So I, that's one that I think is sitting out there. Yeah, well, I think it's a good question. I think China will be the next China. <laughs> that is to say that we're getting China wrong again. Uh, the, the classic uh, argument that is now conventional wisdom was, I think, originally Jim O'Neill's at Goldman. Uh, it was Jim who coined the phrase, the BRICS, uh, and it's Jim who has these wonderful lines that you may have seen that project China's gross domestic product, overtaking that of the United States in 2024 uh, on Tuesday the 15th of March at 10 past 5. <laughs> I, I promise you, that's not going to happen. That is the one thing that you can be certain of, because history just is not like that. It's not linear. When Japan was converging on the United Kingdom, a process that began over 100 years ago, it was certainly not a smooth line, although ultimately that crossover happened. Uh, I think the, the trend is right, but the smoothness is wrong. And I think we're heading for a far bumpier ride in China. Uh, than the conventional wisdom allows. China is already more exposed to the consequences of climate change, vastly more exposed uh, than the United States because of its very uh, location and topography. There's a demographic disaster unfolding as a consequence of the one-child policy. I saw some fascinating statistics uh, only this morning uh, at Hoover about the imbalances, the gender imbalances in China as a result of uh, sex selection and use of abortion against uh, female fetuses. There is going to be a huge oversupply uh, of men and undersupply of women uh, in many parts of China. And more seriously, uh, there is going to be a huge imbalance between the generations 
uh, within the space of, of 20 years. Uh, that is going to cause profound difficulties for China's practically non-existent welfare state. But so if I, if I had to pick a, a, a thing that would be uh, an outlier at this point, it would be the China screw-up, which I think is the one thing that most people assume isn't going to happen. Well, you know, China's getting old before it's getting rich. And no. that's the wrong way to do it. Sure. You know, the other way around is a whole lot better. None of this has ever been tried before. No. I mean, on that scale. Right. So this is, this is, and I should say, this is where historians may not be particularly helpful because we are in a number of very uncharted waters at this point. Well, you know, you could add to that, by the way, the demographics of Russia. Russia is in demographic collapse. Its population is falling. Its labor force is falling fast. And the only thing covering it is $120 a barrel oil. <clears throat> if the price of oil falls or they run into hiccups in one way or another there, uh, Russia could really be under enormous similar pressure yeah. that China would be today. And then what happens? If Russia or China go into this kind of crisis mode, what happens next? Well, I, I, I think this is where the historian can be helpful. When, when politically fragile systems encounter major social and economic shocks, uh, they traditionally in the modern period have used nationalism or some other extreme ideology, but usually nationalism, to try and re-legitimize themselves. Now, I don't know whether you follow this closely. I do. I think the Chinese reaction to our uh, critique of their policy in Tibet is quite fascinating and startling. Uh, there are some really amazing videos that you can watch uh, of, uh, uh, of a nakedly nationalist nature that don't seem to be government generated. Don't seem to be or not? Don't seem to be. Don't, yes. uh, my, my strong impression is that we underestimate the extent to which the internet and the cell phone are allowing not liberal progressive democratic forces uh, to gain ground in China, but the opposite. They're actually allowing a quite old-fashioned and, uh, to our eyes, almost 19th and early 20th century nationalism uh, to mobilize a generation uh, in ways that I'm not even sure the Chinese leadership are in control of. So again, China is the next China. The China we're going to get is not the China of the BRICS story. It's a China with profound social and economic problems, which it will try to address uh, by the kind of nationalism that we have forgotten exists, particularly we Europeans, who are kind of post-nationalist in our, in our ethos. This question, hello. Uh, next question comes from uh, Ron Indek. And, uh, Recently, uh, the speaker here was Nassim Taleb, the black swan guy. So this will be a black swan question. Now, the history nor futurism seems to account for random events that dictate the course of both, the fluke of 9-11, for instance. And uh, can any analysis of the past or future uh, indicate how to basically deal with these things that come out of left field and are predictable only in retrospect? And they're big, and they change everything. Well, I, I, Nassim and I have become uh, pals lately since I reviewed The Black Swan with uh, tremendous enthusiasm. And he and I have this project to write a paper, which is essentially why can't financial markets predict history? Uh, and I think one of the things that makes The Black Swan a, a really good book is its critique of the way that historians conventionally think. I, I actually alluded to it when I talked earlier about our desire for enormous causes uh, to match enormous consequences. Uh, what the black swan is about is, is partly the poverty of indu induction as a method, but mainly actually the problem of historical thinking in trying to explain crises. Uh, so it seems to me if you take a Taleb-like view 
of the way that our complex uh, modern societies operate, uh, you're actually going to start understanding uh, the historical process much better. You have to get away from smooth curves. You have to get away from the assumption that there are nice, regular cycles in the historical process. This was the thing that historians spent generations looking for and not quite finding, the Kondratiev wave, all this stuff, as if history was some kind of regular, uh, arrhythmical process. But it's not. It's actually stochastic. It's, uh, it's a deterministic system, but it, it behaves in ways that appear random. Uh, and this is not just true of financial markets. It's also true of, say, military conflicts. Uh, or, for that matter, revolutions. So my sense is that he's part of a very healthy uh, tendency, a tendency whereby people who come from very different disciplines, in his case, quantitative finance, inform the way that we think about the historical process. My sense is that some of the best history that will be written in the next generation will be written by people with an interdisciplinary background who are as comfortable with that kind of argument as they are uh, wading through dirty old letters left by the dead. Well, you, you rightly made the point uh, when, in, in your comments about evolutionary biology as a, um, a way of thinking about history. And, you know, evolutionary biology is non-teleological, so we don't have purpose and large forces. And the choices of evolution are not planned. They're the random events that and, and, and mutations that come up and get tried in one way or another. And so I think the, the idea of evolutionary biology as a way of thinking about history comes much closer to the way in which Nassim yeah. thinks about it than the kind of Toynbee-esque kind of neat cycles of history or Kondratiev waves or any of those kinds of regularities and that history is, I mean, biology is much messier than, uh, say, the pendulum motion of physics right. that people tried to apply right. as a kind of analogy yeah. to history before. Yeah, I'm sure that's right. You thought we were going to keep God, they agreed. I heard we that. Shut up. Cut right I'm sure that's right, he said. Um, <laughs> I love these names. Pietro Oviedo. Uh, this is to Neil, but it's really to both of you. What do you believe is the purpose of the futurist? Uh, do you think a futurist can change the course of history? This is, a, this is reflexivity uh, as, I mean, we're living history, we're thinking history, the thinking of history and our futures, some by professionals like Peter, but basically by all of us. Uh, we're going around with these notions out in front of us, uh, imagining that that is the path and all they are is notions. Well, the great danger, and this one can learn from history, uh, is, is to believe uh, too firmly in one of your scenarios. After all, it's not as if futurists uh, are a recent invention. It's not as if we only just started to think of scenarios. In fact, most of history is characterized by the use of more or less uh, crude models to construct futures, alarming uh, Goldilocks, uh, or exciting. And it seems to me that the big problem is that very often uh, these futures are so wrong that they lead to decisions that produce uh, even worse futures. The classic example being the one-child policy in China. Uh, the future that the, uh, the Chinese Communist Party was staring at, which was presented to them by their demographers and, and technical experts, was a Malthusian one. We cannot grow crops uh, and rice as fast as the uh, population is growing. We have to do something radical. We have to intervene uh, in the way that the planned economy has intervened in everything else in human reproduction, and they did. And uh, this was a very fine example of, of, of a futurist changing the world, of a planner changing policy. Uh, 
But the unintended consequences are, I believe, going to make China a much less stable place than it would have been if they just tried to increase agricultural productivity and let nature take its course in the way that it's taken its course everywhere else. At a certain point, there is a demographic transition and people stop having really large families. They don't need to be coerced uh, into it. So it seems to me futurists are not new. What's new, I think, is Peter's methodology where you present at least three scenarios and don't explicitly weight the probabilities. Actually, I hate that about Peter's scenarios. <laughs> I want the goddamn probabilities, please. Could you attach some kind of probability to these three scenarios and tell me which one no. is the most likely? <laughs> but because you won't, it seems to me, your role is essentially to present a menu uh, to the CEOs or the managers uh, of, of sovereign wealth funds or possibly even the rulers of great eastern despotisms and say, Sire, I have considered, I've gazed into my crystal ball. But unfortunately, there are three crystal balls. And I will present you with these three crystal balls and you choose the one you really like the look of. And, uh, you know, it's going to be ultimately a matter of taste which scenario any powerful person adopts. If you, don't, if you don't attach your probability. So this is a new game where you offer three, uh, they pick one, but it could be as disastrous as the old model where you just offer one crystal ball. Mm, I think not. And here I think it's like, uh, you, you got it right up until the pick one. Um, and, and that is the objective. And this is, look, this is why I got into the business in the first place. I mean, like a lot of people, I was fascinated by the future. But because this was in the late 60s, I didn't see any futures I liked when I looked at the ideologies of left and right. And I, wanted, I realized we needed better tools for making better decisions about the future. And that's where this alternative thinking process came from. But the important point was not to pick one scenario, but to develop essentially the adaptive capacity on the one hand to be able to live with multiple possibilities, to be able to influence outcomes on the other, uh, and to be able to, in a sense, be resilient against a variety of possibilities. So in, in, it's why, when I sit with CEOs or government leaders, I don't tell them what will happen. I'm not staring into that one single crystal ball. But rather, my measure of success is, do they ask better questions, and do they make better decisions? Not, did they predict a better future? I think the Chinese had a kind of single view uh, and fundamentally misperceived it. And it's where governments often get it wrong, is that they have this kind of view that's based as much on denial as anything else. So I think if one keeps the possibilities open, one is far more likely to make much more agile choices in the face of that uncertainty. I've got a, a follow-on question to that, which is, um, when we started Global Business Network back when, scenarios were uh, looked like they were probably about ready to peak. I mean, Herman Kahn started them a long time before that, and Shell picked up on them and kind of did okay. And then GMN grabbed and ran with them, and we figured, you know, the usual business uh, fad that would be maybe five years if we were lucky. Yeah, we were hoping for 10. Yeah, we were hoping for 10. One of our scenarios was 10. But that didn't happen. It became, uh, it wasn't hula hoops, it was jogging. It was the thing which just uh, became a permanent part of the intellectual landscape of policy, of business, of government, and so on. Are we to conclude that, that the only institutions that don't engage in scenario planning are, are financial institutions? 
because presumably if financial institutions had heeded your methodology, we wouldn't currently be in the mess that we're in because they would have had a scenario in which a liquidity crisis came along and a bank run caused the entire system to teeter on the brink of collapse, no? I mean, why, if, if we've so much adopted this methodology, have the key institutions in our economy screwed up so spectacularly? I, I, are they just not hiring you guys? That's right. <laughs> no, but having said that... That's a new the explanation for the, the subprime crisis. <laughs> Well, in fact, we did work with one of the banks and they sold their subprime portfolio three years ago because they did their scenarios and couldn't see any good ones. Now, yeah, you know who to hire? But having said that, no, look, when the self-interest is so great that the motivation for self-deception is so great that that's, I think, a big part of what was going on here in and, and actually almost always happens in financial crisis. It reaches the point where, you know, you can deceive yourself, well, you know, uh, I'll do one more trade. It's, you know, I'll have like one more shot of heroin uh, and then I'll stop. Uh, and it's the same way. It feeds on itself and you get runaway crises as what has just happened with the subprime. It's hap what happened with the derivatives trading in 1987. It's what happened with some of the bond and real estate and currency in Thailand in 1997. But now you sound just like me. You're giving a whole series <laughs> of historical examples. Okay, here's a, uh, a quote posed as a question. Um, it is arrogant to be pessimistic in the face of a 13.7 billion year trend. 13.7 billion? Whoa, really deep history. Right. <laughs> Basically, since the Big Bang, and things have been getting worse or getting better. The, you know, maybe it's an anthropic <laughs> well, they've, view, they've but the view is pretty much I mean, that. The, you know, the trend I don't is, think the universe is really in particularly great shape. It's uh, not. But we can delude ourselves that... Uh... Oh, no, you're missing biology. Biology is the, is the great invention of the universe in a self-organizing way. I mean, you know, this... But there are fewer been... species. Most of them are tiny microbes that don't shit, uh, whatever it was. That was <laughs> diesel to... fuel. Diesel. <laughs> so much for evolution. Why can't you produce diesel all by yourselves? Uh, they did once, and, you know... I mean, I think the time frame here is crucial. We haven't talked about this, but if you think about human history... You mustn't think about it as, as some 4,000, you know, the civilization story of 4,000 years of continuous advance. It's not. There's 100 years of spectacular advance, and prior to that, it's basically Malthus. Most of human history involves people engaged in subsistence agriculture. Most of organized, civilized, recorded human history is people engaged in subsistence agriculture being exploited by tiny elites. It's only with the Industrial Revolution that the possibility exists through technology, well, I was but say, also like through, through technology, but, right? But <laughs> my case is made. <laughs> I got my butt in, but, but, please, technology allied with major and inexplicable gains in labour productivity right. that may or may not have nutritional. Yeah, no. Oh, read Greg Clark's book. Have you read the Farewell to Arms? There isn't really a very obvious explanation for why it was that the Industrial Revolution saw massive gains in labor productivity in a few countries, beginning with Britain. You can't actually explain it in terms purely of technology. That's one of the things that he shows very clearly. And then, from that point on, there's a sort of exp exponential growth, uh, which is essentially the history of the last 150 years. And that gradually improves the lot of the average human being until you're left with Collier's bottom billion. That's, that's really the way in which we should think about the historical process. The biggest historical question, which I don't think 
Greg answers, is why did hu the human condition suddenly change when most of recorded history was really a rather miserable affair? Well, and if you look at the numbers in terms of, uh, particularly for the US, Europe, and Japan, post-World War II, the rate of growth of per capita income exploded right. relative to history. And I would attribute that not only to new technology, but the scale of organization in terms of the efficiency of networks, of production, and so on, all of those things experienced unbelievable progress over the last 50 years as compared to even the previous 50 or the 150 before that. So, you know, we're on an accelerating trend, oh, not but, a decelerating but, but, trend. But you assume, Peter, and here is our profound difference, that that trend can be projected forward. Whereas it seems to me this uh, phenomenon that we're describing is just an historical anomaly. And it would be really very surprising if it were continued. In fact, it's almost certainly not sustainable over the next 150 years. Have so that's been, the big difference between us, I think. Okay, so here's a history perspective. Have there been past technological, Kurzweil, Moore's Law type curves that accelerated and then broke? Or uh, were they just part of what you might call the very long early part of this uh, slow asymmetric, now accelerating asymmetric curve? Take human nutrition. So. For most of human history, men were and women were malnourished. Uh, you, you can see that by the size of their skeletons that, that survive. Uh, they really were rather short, and their lives were pretty brief. Uh, they didn't, didn't take long, really, to be taken out by disease if you were as poorly fed as the average person throughout most of recorded history. Uh, and then there was a great breakthrough. It wasn't a particularly happy story, I have to tell you, because the great breakthrough involved enslaving millions of Africans and getting them to produce sugar for the consumption of people in Western Europe. Sugar is a great source of energy. If you want to understand the Industrial Revolution, part of the story is that for the first time, there are people in the world who are properly getting uh, the calories that they need, and those people are in Britain. Uh, and th at this point, you, get, you start to see a shift in the direction of proper nutrition, and people start to get better and better fed. And by the mid-20th century, you have human beings getting a really good diet. But then you tip over into the obese era, because this thing can't be sustained. What happens, in fact, is that the habits of the industrial era, let's eat some sugar, let's have more sugar. Hmm, that's pretty good. Let's put some corn oil and sugar and have that too. You reach a, you point, you reach a point of diminishing returns, and you only have to you know, take a walk through, I don't know, uh, Atlanta airport to see how diplomatic, <laughs> not San Francisco you know, airport. Progress is not like that in the realm of human nutrition, which is the central most important driver in many ways in the Industrial Revolution story. There comes a point when you just can't actually get any bigger as a human being. You've reached the point in Monty, the Monty Python life of Brian when you're about to explode. Not life of Brian, meaning of life. Thank you, jet lag. Okay, here's a uh, specific question from Lane Bork. Mr. Ferguson, do you feel the big, that's for both of you, do you feel the big cause in the current Middle East conflict lay more in modern times or more in the events of Herodotus' histories or something else? Well, I think the conflicts of, of our time have relatively shallow historical roots. Uh, though I wouldn't say, as often people uh, do say, that, that they can all be blamed on decisions taken between around 1917 and 1921. It's an easy argument to make uh, that the problems of the your, Middle your East... Your hero, Churchill, 
didn't get it wrong? Uh, well, you see, it's easy to blame British and French imperialists for the way in which the Middle East's uh, landscape uh, changed after World War I. But this is to overlook a fundamental problem, which is that the Ottoman Empire was no uh, idyll. Indeed, the first modern genocide happened before the breakup of the Ottoman Empire in 1915, as I'm sure everybody here knows. So one can't simply blame this on decisions taken when the Ottoman Empire was broken up. There was something already badly wrong uh, in that region, just as the process of, uh, of Jewish colonization that ultimately produced the State of Israel predated the First World War and can be traced right back into the 19th century. And I think I would look there. One has to look, it seems to me, to the mid-19th century and the process that leads up to the First World War and then beyond to understand the, the problems that we currently face. They, they do have to do uh, with that phenomenon that interests me so much, ethnic disintegration, when different ethnic and sectarian groups become increasingly hostile to one another to the point of being unable to cohabit uh, peacefully. That's a process which is, is actually, it seems to me, the most interesting one to understand in modern history. Remember Samuel Huntington, who predicted in 1993 that the post-Cold War era would be about a clash of civilizations. Well, the history of the Middle East suggests otherwise. It suggests actually far more complex processes, uh, particularly of, of sectarian violence within so-called civilization. Uh, and that, that seems to me to be a, a really difficult thing to explain. Why, what is it that causes Sunnis and Shias to engage in systematic uh, violence against one another? This is a new phenomenon uh, in the sense that it hasn't been seen much in, in recent years, but it's an ancient phenomenon because it can cite disputes that go back into deep history. One of the things that makes a question like that so difficult is that the protagonists justify their hatred of one another in terms of the distant past. And that inclines us to think that all of this lies, I don't know, as far back as the early history of Islam. But I don't think it does. I think these are just legitimations of relatively recent disputes between people living cheek by jowl in relatively densely populated, impoverished cities. I think I would add one thing, which is alluded into in, in, in your observation. But I think there's something in, let me call it, the Arab culture, uh, North Africa, uh, Middle East, uh, that uh, we have seen these kinds of struggles uh, among families, the Hashemites versus the Sauds and so on. Uh, all the different subcultures, and very much, in the, I think, in, in the spirit of the War of the World, but that have been at each other for quite a long time, not necessarily fighting out ancient enmities and so on, but simply family rivalries, cultural rivalries and so on for relative dominance. And post-World War I, they kind of got locked into national boundaries, e.g. the Saudi Peninsula and the Hashemites up toward Jordan, etc. And we have transposed, I think, uh, cultural, tribal, familial conflict into nationalism, and that becomes extremely difficult because it, then it's no longer quite as malleable and amenable to the kind of compromises that history actually allowed them to pursue in the past. The only thing I'd add to that, Peter, is that before we make any blanket our claims about the character of, of Arab culture, or, or for that matter, Islam, we should remember that although the Middle East hasn't been a peaceful place, uh, since World War II. The, the wars that have been fought there have, with one exception, been very small. Yes, that's true. Uh, and that exception is the Iran-Iraq War. Most, most uh, of, the, of the wars in the Middle East that we've seen have been uh, short in duration. The casualty rates have been, by mid-20th century standards, tiny. Europe has been, historically, a far more violent place than the Middle East. It's only very recently 
that are a propensity for slaughtering one another within European civilization has finally been tamed. Uh, I mean, well, Clash of Civilization. You did a pretty good job. Right, but even before then, think of the Thirty Years' War. Uh, Protestants and Catholics have inflicted more violence on one another over the long durée than Sunnis and Shias, or for that matter, Arabs uh, and Jews. And one should bear that in mind before passing uh, judgments on the region. Uh, we're going to have to wind down because you have to catch a car to the plane. Uh, but it would be interesting to get from one of the questions here what prepares us better for the future? Prepares us better for the future, a pessimistic approach or an optimistic approach? Oh, well, I'll, I'll take it. Uh, it for on, me, Mr. there's no Pangloss. question. It's an optimistic approach. And I, and I say that for a very simple reason. That I think uh, it is, you know, I, I'm, I'm struck by is it, is Antonio Gramsci's uh, quote about the uh, pessimism of the intellect and the optimism uh, of the will. Uh, that is that uh, we need to think hard about how hard and difficult the challenges are, but we need to be able to imagine that we can overcome them, that if we fail to achieve greatness, if we fail to meet the challenges that things like climate change or ethnic conflict or uh, the challenges that a place like China with its environmental and, and energy challenges represents, I think they are mostly failures uh, to be able to imagine better possibilities that motivate people to do things that are different from their uh, historical uh, inclinations. So we come to the, the question of, of the, the probabilities to be attached to scenarios and the weights to be applied to them. And it seems to me I take a completely different view from you. The most important scenario, the one you should think about most, is the worst case scenario. <laughs> that is the one to focus on because that is the one that will blow you up. Goldilocks can take care of herself. <laughs> and as for Pangloss, he's just fine. The key thing is to look very hard for that worst case scenario and make sure you have got it right. Now, the argument for historical study that I want to conclude with is this. You can try and rely on your own imagination to come up with a worst case scenario. You can do it just from first principles, fine. But I believe you will do better at identifying that worst case scenario. You will come up with a better range of possible nightmare outcomes if you study history. <laughs> <laughs> and remember, um, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, if you... Way to go. Outstanding, people. Thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.